just first, before I get into the teaching today, just say thank you. Uh, first of all, to all of you guys for uh, not revolting when I leave, um, letting me take time off and do things like this year was different than a normal vacation for me because we turned our vacation into dropping our daughter off at college, which is um, was fun when she told us she was going to go to LCCC, when she changed her mind, decided she was going to go to California. It wasn't nearly as fun, uh, but uh, it, was, it was a better place to visit, let's just say that. Um, but uh, so just thankful that uh, you guys will allow me to do those types of things and uh, to spend some time away. During that time, I was able to uh, visit just a bunch of different churches, a handful here in town, uh, Calvary Chapel in Casper, I was able to teach at and went to a church in Laramie and uh, watched a service online for in, one in California, just hoping to get a glimpse. My daughter was there at her first church service away, and so I was hoping at one point she'd walk across the camera or something, but she didn't. She probably just hung out in the back row. And, but uh, anyway, uh, and, and just enjoy being around other believers, but uh, enjoy being around the believers at this church more. You know, nothing, nothing against the other believers, but I'm just used to you guys. And uh, uh, also thankful for Aaron and Tom and the teaching they've been doing. I know, you know Tom's been uh, wanting to teach this series on spiritual gifts, so for him to cover the last eight weeks has been nice. And then for Aaron to cover the last four weeks uh, on Wednesday nights on evangelism, I've got great reviews from everybody on those. And so if you had the bad reviews, I don't want to hear them. It's okay. Uh, you can uh, pass those uh, on to a pastor of another church. That's fine, but I don't need to know them. But uh, uh, we'll just uh, just be thankful for all that they do. I know that was a little extra work for them uh, to be able to handle some things while I was gone. Aaron covered a, a huge funeral situation for me, which was uh, good uh, that he was able to do that and led some people to Christ through that. So exciting to see how God works through other people. Uh, but we are going to start the Gospel of Mark today. And so if you'll open your, your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, uh, we'll probably start out in verse 1. Seems like a good place to start. Uh, not to get anybody too excited, but when I finish the Gospel of Mark, I will have taught verse by verse through every book of the New Testament. And so, but don't get too excited because it'll probably take me a while. So don't feel like we're like imminent at this point. It's still going to take a while to get through this book. Uh, what is interesting about the Gospel of Mark, I call it Jesus in action. The Gospel of Mark was actually the first gospel uh, account written, or at least uh, that's what uh, scholars tell us, that it was written. And then Matthew and Luke took kind of that structure of Mark and expanded it and filled it in the details. But Mark has this one word that's repeated over and over and over in the book. It's the word immediately, like 40 times that word is used in this book. And so it'll say, Jesus was here and he did this. And then immediately Jesus was here and he did this. And then immediately Jesus was here and he did this. It's like the ADD gospel or something like that. And it makes it really kind of hard to divide it up because Mark does not spend a lot of time on any of the stories. I mean, he basically just says, you know, things like, oh, Jesus healed a bunch of people here, and then he went over here, and then he cast out some demons, and then he went over here, and then he preached the gospel, and you're like, there's, there's not a lot of meat there, Mark. How do I divide this book up without dividing it up into a million little, you know, tweets or something like that? How do you turn these into sermons? And so we'll see how that kind of works out. I'm trying to work that all out in my head. I sent out a nice outline of the first five chapters to everybody uh, on staff and all the elders so they could be prepared, and I told them I was going to get all the way to verse 13 today, uh, but I'm really only going to do verse 1, so my whole outline's already thrown off. Uh, Sheila made a great comment, though, about the Gospel of Mark as she was trying to read ahead. She's like, it's, it's perfect for this social media society that we live in today, that everything's just kind of these quick little insights without the fullness, and so it fits well 
with kind of the social media world we live in. You can see each one of these stories just being a, a quick post on Facebook or Twitter or something like that. It's just these really quick and exciting things. Uh, what is great about the Gospel of Mark, though, uh, is I think that it allows us to see the most basic things about the life of Jesus Christ. It's just going to lay out those basic things. Uh, I had a neat opportunity this week. I was asked to pray at a political meeting. Um, it was, you know, I, I came in, I prayed, and they served food, and then the politician spoke for a couple hours, and then I prayed to close. So I kind of had two hours in the middle of there where I'm like, now I have nothing to do, so I guess I'll just listen to these politicians speak. And, uh, but was was really interesting, one of the folks that was speaking was a gal by the name of Jillian Balo. she's the superintendent of public schools, and um, setting all politics aside, I just want to <laughs> say one really cool thing that she said that really impacted me in my thinking about this book. Uh, she was uh, relaying a story that her daughter was at basic training and had just sent her a letter. And the letter said, Mom, this is what I've learned at basic training. I have learned to dominate the basics. To dominate the basics. I love that phrase. I've learned to dominate the basics to take the very basic, most important things. And if, if you've ever been in the military, you understand what she's talking about. They will spend hours upon hours upon hours critiquing how you fold a t-shirt. Everything to be precisely done in exactly the same way. And it's the most basic of things. They call it basic training because it is basic. It's not that it's undifficult. It's, it's difficult for a number of reasons. But it's not complicated concepts. Now, you're going to make your bed over and over and over and over and over again. You're going to fold t-shirts over and over and over again. You're going to shine your boots over and over and over again. And I think sometimes when you do those same things over and over again, maybe you get a little bit bored. And I think for some people, that's kind of how they see four Gospels in the Bible. Really? Do we need the same story four times? Apparently, God thinks we do. He shows us the same story from four different perspectives. What we want to do is we want to dominate those basics. Uh, when I think about that as a Christian, that sometimes we get distracted by important but kind of out there things. And we get lazy in the very basic, simple things of the gospel. The very simple, basic things of the life of Jesus Christ. Now, and we want to argue over uh, predestination versus free will. We want to have arguments and discussions over those things, and it's fine to have those things, but first dominate the idea that you're saved by grace through faith. Just dominate that idea. Just make that saturate who you are. And we want to argue over when Jesus is coming back, but let's just be dominant in this fact of whether you believe he's pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, Whatever it is, just dominate the idea that he's coming back. To just dominate those very basic things. And so that's what we want to do in the Gospel of Mark. Everything that you see in the Gospel of Mark is going to seem familiar to you. You're going to have heard these stories from Sunday school on up if you grew up in church. Even if you didn't grow up in church, many of these things you'll already have known about Jesus because they're that basic. But if we can kind of dominate the basic things, you'll find uh, that it can actually do quite a bit for your faith. Uh, it's one of the things I go back to time and again for my own faith and the faith of other people that I'm spending time either counseling or discipling is let's just get back to the very basic things. Uh, I would say this in preparation 
for the sermons each week, if you could just do this one very simple thing, it, it will change the way you view the weekly sermon. Just read the passage every day. Just every day. And you can do it, you know, either going into the sermon, so the week before leading up to the sermon, read through the passage every day. As you do that, it's going to do a couple of things. Uh, let's just say you're going to read Mark chapter 1 every day this next week. So you sit down and you read Mark chapter 1 every day this next week. What it's going to do, first of all, it's going to categorize and organize the Word of God in your brain. And by going through it seven times might seem redundant to some people, but as you go through it over and over and over again, it's going to populate your brain with the tools that you need to do the work of God. It's going to populate your brain with the Word of God so at the right moment, at the right time, the Holy Spirit of God can take the Word that's already implanted in you and apply it situationally to your life. So you just go back over and over and over and read through those very basic things, just getting in that habit. So that's your homework assignment, by the way, uh, every week is to just read, whether it's reading what I just taught or reading what I'm teaching next. That's totally up to you, however you want to do that. But just this idea of reading God's word, just dominating in the very basic things. Well, Mark starts out uh, in a very simple way. He says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he makes some pretty bold claims in that first verse. And so we really are, we're, gonna, we're not just going to dominate the basics. We're going to dominate this verse today. We're going to spend our entire time on this one verse, which might seem uh, a little bit excessive. Um, I, I didn't intend to do it this way, but just as I was kind of studying this out, uh, it seemed better to me to do this than to go into a detailed outline uh, of what this is. So uh, we're going to just look at this one verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what we will see uh, in this verse, that uh, the title Mark was not actually written by Mark. Mark didn't say, this is the gospel of Mark. That was added later uh, by scholars, by some of the early church fathers, just for identification's sake. In fact, Mark never even mentions himself by name in the whole book. So by tradition, this was written by Mark. But what we're finding here, this is the real title of the book. This is how Mark would have titled it. He titled it, The Beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And in that title, he doesn't just give us the title, but it's the theme for the whole book, the gospel. That's the theme for the whole book. It's the gospel, and specifically of the main character, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what this whole book is about. And so we're going to see the life of Jesus laid out, but it's really the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and again, like I said, the title Mark was given later. Uh, most people believe that Mark was interviewing Peter, the apostle Peter, that Mark was probably one of the disciples of Jesus fairly early on and had been involved in the ministry of Jesus, but that he was trying to get things from the perspective of Peter. Uh, there's a number of different ways you can get that, but part of it is just looking at the character traits of how these things are written, match up with the character traits of how Peter wrote in other places, some similarities there uh, that you can follow through. But that's kind of what they believe was happening, that Mark, who was an eyewitness, but he wasn't nearly as close as an eyewitness as Peter was. Peter was right there with Jesus in some of the most intimate of moments and would have experienced and seen things that Mark never would have. And so... Uh, let's look now at the main character. The main character is Jesus Christ. And of course, he's not just the main character of the Gospel of Mark. He's, he's the main character of the entire New Testament. 
And uh, there, there's a lot of things that could be said about Jesus. I'm not going to spend a ton of time speaking about who Jesus is to you this morning because that's what the rest of the book is going to do. Uh, but I think there are a few things about Jesus uh, that maybe can be gathered that we may not connect with initially. Uh, for those of you that maybe don't know that, that Jesus uh, is, is how do I say this? Jesus is the way that we recognize his name, but that's not the way that Mark wrote his name or heard his name. That Mark would have been taking uh, a Hebrew name, Yeshua, which we kind of relate to the, the English name Joshua. He would have been taking that Hebrew name, Yeshua, translating it into Greek, Eosos, or something like that. I don't speak Greek, but the, he was, he was kind of transliterating it into a Greek word so he could write this down in Greek. And then as we've translated that, we've turned that into a more English-sounding word, Jesus. But the word Yeshua means God saves. Now, that was a pretty popular name. It's not like this is the only Yeshua who ever walked the face of the earth. At that time, there were lots of Yeshuas, people by that name. But I think his name is significant because it really does just tell us who Jesus is. He is God who saves. That's who Jesus is. That's the main character of the gospel of Mark. It is Jesus, the God who saves. Now, if you want to know more about who Jesus is, obviously following around on Sunday mornings or help or ladies. Again, you have that nice little uh, piece of paper there on your seat to tell you about the statement of faith of the church, the new Bible study called We Believe. Uh, but in our statement of faith, you can look at this. Uh, we keep them uh, online. We keep them out in the overflow. Anytime you sign up for a ministry, you have to agree with this. But uh, this is what it says about Jesus. We believe in the deity of Jesus, his virgin birth, his sinless life, his miracles, his vicarious and atoning death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, his personal return to earth in power and in glory. What's interesting about Mark, when we look at this list of things that we believe about Jesus, Mark makes no mention of the birth of Jesus. Mark just picks it up with the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, because that was his point. He wants to show how Jesus brought the gospel to the world. He wants to explain that and express that. He wants to show us all of that, but he's not going to go into great details about pretty much anything up to and including the birth of Jesus. If you want to know anything about the birth of Jesus, you have to look at the Gospel of Matthew. You have to look at the Gospel of Luke. Uh, if you want to know who Jesus was before he was born or incarnate here on earth, you look at the Gospel of John. That'll explain how that works to you. But Mark doesn't go into any of that. He just goes straight into this idea of Jesus, and he just puts him to action immediately. Now, with the name Jesus, this is going to be the first of two bold statements that, the, that Mark is going to make as he writes out his gospel. The first bold statement that he's going to make about Jesus is that Jesus is the Christ. When it says Jesus Christ there, that's not saying Jesus, first name Jesus, second name Christ. It's saying Jesus, who is the Christ. It's a title of who Jesus was. Uh, you know, it's kind of like saying uh, a Pastor Sean. It would be the same thing. You know, Pastor is not my first name, Sean, my last name. No, my name is Sean. Pastor is just a title that's applied to me. Well, in the same sense, Mark is making a bold claim that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, or as, it, as the word means, the anointed or the chosen one. 
And, and this is another one of those things that kind of interesting in the language because you have to, to realize that in an Old Testament Hebrew sense, the word that they would be looking at is Messiah, anointed, chosen, that type of idea. And then so that had to be turned into a Greek word. The Greek word is Christ, but that is not his name. That's his title. So Mark is making this bold claim right from the beginning of his book that he's talking about the main character of his book is a guy by the name of Jesus who is the promised Messiah of the Jews. And so the history of all of that has to be put in mind, has to be put in place, uh, that we sometimes kind of uh, miss how important that title is. That the nation of Israel had been waiting for hundreds of years, some would even say thousands if you follow all the prophecies back, thousands of years for the Messiah, their Savior, to come. And what Mark is saying to all the Jewish people who are going to end up reading this book, he's saying it to all of them. He's saying, look, the Messiah that you were waiting for, your parents were waiting for, your grandparents were waiting for, that all of our people going all the way back to the beginning of time, all of them were waiting for one person to appear on the scene. And I'm telling you that one person is Jesus of Nazareth. He's that one person that all of the nation of Israel was waiting for. And again, for us, we kind of listen to that and we hear that and we're like, yeah, that's, the, that's some basic stuff there, Sean. We already know that. But we can never know it like they needed to know it. And we never can because we didn't grow up in a culture that tells you while you're in bondage and in slavery, whether it was the, the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Greeks or the Romans who were kind of dominating the Jews at this time, any one of these groups throughout the history of the nation of Israel who had enslaved that nation, who were, who were leading them in a way that they never wanted to go, as they waited generation after generation after generation for a promised leader who's going to save them from all of that, waiting their whole life for that, expecting and hoping that it would come, but never really getting to realize it for generation after generation. The only way I can even relate it even closely to us is the rapture of the church. Like, like all of our forefathers in the Christian faith have been saying for 2,000 years, Jesus is coming back. That's what they've been saying for 2,000 years. And we all hope that it's going to happen during our lifetime, but so did our grandparents and our great-grandparents, and their parents, and their great-grandparents, and every generation since the death of Jesus Christ has been waiting for 2,000 years for Jesus to return to the earth. Well, imagine that generation that's going to actually see Jesus return to the earth. Could you imagine the excitement, the joy, the celebration that goes on? That's what Mark is supposedly doing for the Jews. He's saying, you've been waiting for the chosen one, the Messiah, the anointed one to come for thousands of years, hundreds of years, thousands of years. You've been waiting and waiting and waiting. And now I'm telling you, he was here. It would have been a bold statement. It would have been a powerful and important statement. Uh, the idea of Jesus being the anointed one or the chosen one, it, it goes back to some imagery in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you had the prophets, you had the priests, and you had the kings. Those are the three people that were typically anointed as a chosen people. Uh, they were typically the ones that were to stand as a mediator between God and man. So the prophet would be anointed by God, but what he would do, the prophet, would speak for God. 
the priest in the tabernacle would be essentially that stand-in for God, anointed. And in the same way, the king would be in the throne in the place of God. So as God had designed the nation of Israel, it was supposed to be that God was king, but the people couldn't handle that, so they begged for an earthly king. And so God essentially sets up an earthly king, Saul, David, Solomon, on down the list. But what he does is he says, this person is just the image of me. This person is just designed so that you can relate to somebody, but understand that he's supposed to be my representative on this earth. So as you relate to him, he is relating to you as if it was God relating to you. That's the way it was supposed to work, but unfortunately, sinful man in, is involved in that. Same idea with Moses, kind of this great prophet that all of Israel looks to. What did God say to Moses? They will look to you as if you are God. That was kind of the idea there. These people would be representations of God on earth. And so Moses was anointed, and the high priest was anointed to be in this position. And anointed just means they would pour oil on their head. It was highly symbolic, but it was purposeful. It was kind of to announce. When I was in the military, we would do change of command ceremonies. And it was just very symbolic ceremony where you would have these two men, these two leaders standing in front of everybody assembled so everybody could see what was going on. Everybody's in formation. And the old commander would take a flag and he would pass it to the new commander. And it was just this transition where you can see what's going on there. Well, that's what this anointing was like. When they would anoint the new king or when they would anoint a new high priest, they would pour oil over his head, but it was symbolic to everyone that he's now the one who is anointed by the Spirit of God. And so when Mark says Jesus is the Christ, he's saying Jesus is the anointed one, which would make all the Jewish people think he is the Messiah. And they would gain that language from Daniel chapter 9. Uh, if you were here for the Daniel study, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you weren't here for the Daniel study, you may still know what I'm talking about. It's not that complicated. But Daniel basically said, hey, just so you know, and then he goes through his whole prophecy of the 70s and the 7s and all of those things, that there's this time coming when Messiah the Prince will come. And so the nation of Israel was waiting for that time. Of course, we went through how that uh, can be translated into an actual countdown. And you see at the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, that was actually the day that Daniel predicted that Messiah would come. That was the day that the nation of Israel was supposed to celebrate, throw a party, because their new king had come to town. Unfortunately, they didn't. And so the gospel writers are telling the Jews, hey, you missed him. Here's who he was. And they go about explaining how Jesus, in fact, was the, the, the savior that they were looking for, the Messiah. He was this great and mighty prince, prophet, king, the anointed one that everyone was waiting for. Uh, the next bold claim that the uh, gospel of Mark makes, not just that Jesus was the awaited for, long awaited for Messiah, the anointed one. The next thing he says is that Jesus was the son of God. Uh, again, for us who've been in church forever, we think, well, we've heard that before. But we're going to dominate this basic fact. This is important. The majority of things that you're going to hear from false religions, from all the cults that are out of there, one of the great things that they repeat over and over and over, one of his repeated lies, is that Jesus is not God. This lie is repeated over and over and over, and you need to be able to point to them clearly in Scripture. No, Jesus is God, and here's how we know that your religious 
belief system is false. You have to be able to point these things out to them. You have to be able to defend your faith. And this is one of the most basic things that Mark says. It's a bold claim. He's saying that Jesus is the Son of God, but if he's the Son of God, then he is by nature God. Because if a dog has a baby, it's always a dog, right? That's the way that works out. And if a zebra has a baby, it's a zebra. And if a man, wait, if a human, I have to be careful how you say, if a human has a baby, it's a human. And if God has a child, it's a, Jesus is God. In very nature, he is God. Now, it's not just this one little phrase that points us to the fact that he's not just the son of God, but also God himself. The rest of the scripture proclaims that, both in the Old and the New Testament. Uh, I took the liberty of writing down some of those verses. Uh, I have them written in the front of my Bible. I keep them up there just because I'm very forgetful. And so sometimes I can tell people what the verse said, but I cannot tell them where I found that verse. So I can like, I've memorized the verse, but then I get all confused on where that is. So I just write them down. Why complicate my life? Why try to remember more than I actually have to, right? Um, so I, you know, just keep my brain in the front of my Bible there. Uh, but, but a number of verses, I highlighted a, a couple of them there. Uh, the prophet Isaiah said that Jesus would be mighty God. That's who he said Jesus was going to be. The coming Messiah, the suffering servant, will be mighty God. That's who he's going to be. Uh, John chapter 20, 28 is a great one where Thomas sees the resurrected Jesus Christ, he gets down on his knees before him and he says, my Lord and my God. And you, does Jesus correct him? No. Jesus doesn't correct him. The Apostle Paul, when writing to Titus, says, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then Peter uses the same language in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Very clear statements all throughout Scripture that Jesus is God. Now, do we have to be able to explain, explain every detail of the Trinity? I would hope we could say it in a simple way. We should be able to explain very simply what the Trinity is, which I'll do for you here in a second. But, but please don't feel like you have to be able to defend every aspect of the Trinity because when you try to explain it to people, it is very confusing. I get that. But I think it's simple enough to just say Jesus is God. Well, then who's God the Father? Oh, that's God. Well, then who's God the Holy Spirit? Oh, that's God. So there's three gods? No, there's just one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Son is not the Spirit. It's one God eternally manifest as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. See how complicated it gets? So let's just dominate the basics. Jesus is God. He just is. The scriptures proclaim that over and over and over again. And anybody who worships a Savior, who worships a Jesus who is not God, is worshiping a false Jesus. We have to dominate these basics. We have to dominate these things. 
Jesus, who is the anointed chosen one of God, the Savior of the world, is God. That's who he is. Now, that's the main character of the book. The main theme of the book is the gospel. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, again, uh, the word gospel is really kind of made up, and there's it's kind of a long way that you get there. Uh, but the word gospel just literally simply means good news. Uh, the way this came about, there's a Greek word that I'm not going to say very well, but it's like, something like that. It sounds like, you angel, oh, it's kind of like that, but I don't speak Greek, and so I'm just making it up as I go anyway, right? But uh, the, that word is translated all throughout your Bible as gospel, except in three instances where it's translated as evangelists. It's really actually the same word. So here's the way they got there. All right, if you were to take the word, the angel, um, that Greek word, and transliterate it, which means take Greek letters to make them look like English letters, that's where they came out with this word evangel. That's where they came out with that word. That's how they came to the English version of that word. Now, if you were to do a translation of what it means, good news to German, you would get Godspell. But over time, it just started being said quickly, and it became gospel. And then when they were writing the New Testament in English, they took that German word from the German translation, and they just wrote it out as a new word. Just made up a word. I do it all the time. It's fine. <laughs> Usually, I don't do it on purpose. It's just accidental, but it happens, right? So that's kind of how they came up with this idea of gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But let me tell you what it means historically. Historically, if you were in battle as a Hebrew, if you had your armies out there at battle and you won the battle, how do the people at home know that you won the battle? Do you just text everybody? <laughs> we won the war. Everybody celebrate. You post it on Facebook, right? You watch the evening news. Well, they didn't have any of that. So they would send a herald. They would send not a guy named Harold, H-E-R-A-L-D, not H, anyway. They would send a guy running back to their people whose job it was to tell everybody the good news, we just won the war. Let's party. That was the whole point. Because if you had your whole family away at war and you're sitting at home worrying whether the war continues, what's happening in the war, whether your family's dead, and then it's going to take months for that army to get back home, you're worrying for months needlessly. So the battle has already been won. Somebody has to get that message, and that's what an evangelist was. It was somebody who returned with the good news that the war was over, and, and as, I, as I heard it this week, good news, we won, let's party, so that the people back home could start celebrating the victory that's already happened elsewhere. So they don't have to wait for months and months and months for the news to get there. This one person, this evangelist, would go rushing back home to tell everybody. So this is what the good news is. This is what the gospel is. Good news, we won, let's party. That's what it all comes down to. That's what the gospel is. Good news, we won the war Let's party. Well, let's see exactly how that's then translated for us by Jesus. And this is, I think, an important fact. Remember that when Jesus was preaching, he was preaching predominantly to Jewish people. 
So he's preaching in very Jewish terms. And you'll find at different times in the Gospel of Mark where Mark feels like he has to explain Judaism to people. Because he understands that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, would read these things and go, what is he talking about? And so just every once in a while throughout the book, Mark kind of takes a quick pause and goes, for you non-Jewish people, this is what that means. He just kind of explains it out in ways that he wouldn't necessarily have to do to Jewish people. Well, that's what we're going to have to do here. Uh, If you were to look, just jump forward just a couple of verses to verse 14 and 15, where it's going to tell us that Jesus begins to preach the gospel. It says this, uh, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. So what was he doing? He's preaching the gospel of God. So what did he say while he was preaching the gospel of God? The time is fulfilled The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What was his gospel? What was his good news? What was the battle or the victory that he was telling everybody that had been won? He says this, the time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So if you put that in the terms of that original idea I gave you of the war is won, let's party. It's kind of the same idea, that victory has been gained. God's kingdom now reigns. It's been fulfilled. It's been accomplished. That's good news. Let's party. So he says this now to a Jewish group of people. So when he says the time is fulfilled, there's a reason for that. He's pointing back to those prophecies of that promised kingdom. Uh, Again, I I mentioned this earlier, but remember that from time to time, the Jews were enslaved by other nations. These prophecies about the coming Messiah were written largely during the Babylonian captivity. We've been covering that for years in the Old Testament study because we had Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel, and I still have Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther just going forward. So this is just, if you've been here on Wednesday nights, you already know what I'm talking about. It surrounds everything about the Old Testament end of the history there in the Old Testament. It's a a big deal. But the nation of Israel divided. You had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, called Israel, was taken away by the Assyrians, and, and they were just scattered. The southern kingdom, Judah, was carried away by the Babylonians into captivity, and they were there for hundreds of years. And from that time forward to the time of Jesus Christ, Understand that the nation of Israel was always in some state of captivity. They never had these long spells where they were kind of in control of their own government. Even as they returned to the land of Israel, they were still kind of under these foreign kings. And they were desperate for God to reestablish his kingdom. They were desperate for it. They were begging for it. They would cry out to God. They would pray and fast. What you have to remember is the reason these other kings were able to dominate the nation of Israel was that God allowed it to punish Israel for their sinfulness. They had rejected his law. They had rejected justice. And so they weren't doing justice to the people in their land. In addition to that, they weren't following the laws of God. And God said, as a punishment, as promised when I made you as a nation, I made this covenant with you. If you keep my commandments, I will bless you forever. If you reject my commandments, I will have another nation come and carry you away into captivity. In the book of Deuteronomy, that's exactly what happened. God's word was fulfilled. It was promised and it was was executed by God. But then God made a promise while they were in captivity 
that he would send a savior, that he would reestablish his kingdom. And that's where things start to get a little bit rough for the Jews. So now they're waiting for his kingdom, and each step of the way, they feel like they've got it. They were able to go back to Jerusalem. His kingdom has restored, but it really wasn't. They would begin to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. His kingdom is restored, but it really wasn't because they were still under other kings. They would rebuild the temple, and they would have these ceremonies to say, ah, the temple is rebuilt. But the kingdom really wasn't restored yet. In fact, it doesn't even mention at that point the fire of God coming and filling the temple like at other times. The kingdom was still not restored. What Mark is saying is the restoration of the kingdom of God came through Jesus Christ. So the good news that Jesus was preaching as he was going out and about preaching the gospel, for him, the good news that he was preaching to all the Jews is, hey, good news, the fulfillment of all those Old Testament promises are fulfilled in me, your new king. So here's Jesus, the king of the Jews, going out telling everybody that he's their king, proving it to them in miraculous ways, and yet the majority of the nation rejected their new king. Jesus was announcing to the world, time is fulfilled, all that was promised to you in the prophets, it's fulfilled. God's kingdom is here. And when he says here, he's like, right here in me, it's me. I'm your king. And they rejected him as king. And the end result is that since that time, they've never been able to experience the kingdom of God as he intended. Now for us, we take a little bit of solace in that. Because we recognize that when the gospel was rejected by the Jews, that Jesus turned his attention through the apostles to the non-Jews, announcing that his kingdom has been established. And so for the Gentiles, for us, we've been welcomed into God's kingdom. And there will be a physical kingdom at the end of this age when the Jews finally begin to accept Jesus at the second coming and he establishes a literal physical kingdom. But right now, God is king wherever the people make him king. Is he the king of your life is the issue. The king's the boss. He's the one in charge. Is the kingdom of God here? It's only here if we make him king, if we put him in charge of our life. And so what Jesus was saying then, not just is the time fulfilled, not just is the kingdom of God here, but then he gives them a step to follow up, not just the announcement. So the announcement before was, war's over, we won, let's party. Jesus says, hey, here's the deal, kingdom's here. Your response to that is to repent and believe in the gospel. That's supposed to be our response, to repent and believe, to change your actions and your mind and begin to believe the kingdom is in Jesus Christ. Uh, For the Jews, this was a big issue. Uh, And again, I, I pointed this out quite a bit in the Old Testament study, but as we were going through those prophets over and over and over, the theme was 
God would continually offer them forgiveness, but they would refuse to give up their sin. They would continue to worship other gods. They would continue to reject the, the teachings of the old covenant. They would continue to do injustice to the people in their nation over and over and over and over again. In fact, he told Jeremiah, Jeremiah, here you go. I'm going to give you this great prophetic ministry. You're going to be able to proclaim some amazing mysteries to the people of Israel. You ready for this? And they're all going to reject you. That's what your life's going to be all about. Continual rejection. All that you teach, nobody will believe. And that's what the Old Testament had ended up being so many times. God continually offering people opportunity to be forgiven of their sins, to repent, to turn away from their sins. And the people refusing to do it. What Jesus is saying to the nation of Israel, to the Jews here in his preaching that starts out here in Mark chapter 1, what he's saying to them is, turn away from the way you've been doing things. Turn towards me as your king. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. So much for us is predicated on that same gospel message that Jesus proclaimed not just for the Jew, but now we understand also for us. That it's our job to recognize that apart from Jesus Christ, somebody else was king. For most of us, it was us. We made ourselves king. We decided we were king of our own life, of our own heart, of our own future, of our own destiny. We decided we were in charge, and we did whatever we want. Jesus says, you've got to turn from that. Make me king by believing in me. And that's really the whole message of the gospel of Mark repeated over and over and over and over and over again. It's that very basic idea. Turn away from going your own direction and follow after your new king, Jesus Christ. Repent and believe. That's the whole message of the Gospel of Mark. Repent and believe. It's that very basic thing that we need to dominate in our own lives. Amen? So here's uh, how we'll handle this. I typically assume when I'm preaching at church on Sunday morning that like 98% of the people in the room have already repented and believed. That's just kind of one of those things I assume. Statistically, I can't do the math to prove it. And so sometimes I kind of get uh, just kind of routine and, and in a habit when it comes to the idea of giving opportunity for people to repent and believe. But I will tell you this, you will never master your faith. You will never master Christianity if you haven't done the most basic of things. To turn away from you being in charge of your life and to turn towards Jesus Christ being in charge of your life. If you haven't made that mental change, you're not a believer. You're not saved by the Savior. You're not destined for an eternity in the presence of God. If you've never given up control of your life like that, it's just not who you are. Uh, You're something other. Uh, I don't want to say it in a mean way, but essentially I would say it this way, which will sound mean. You're just a fake believer. 
You're just somebody who goes through the motions so that they appear to be a Christian. But you kind of do whatever you want anyway. And I fear that there's more like that in our midst than we know. There's more people than we know that are just pretending to be Christians for some potential gain that they see out of it, whether in reputation or in somehow earning favor with God. When instead what we really need to do is just turn away from that, repent, and believe the good news. God's kingdom is found in his king, Jesus Christ. So I'm going to do something I never do because it's the most awkward thing in the world for me personally. And that is, I'm going to have everybody close their eyes. Except me, I'm spying. (coughs) And I'm going to go ahead and, Dave, you can come on back up for a closing song if you want to, but uh, I'm just going to have everybody just close their eyes. And I'm just going to ask this very simple question. Is Jesus Christ the king of your life? If you want to make him king of your life today, you've not done it before, but you want to make him king of your life today, I want you to do something very simple, and that's just raise your hand in the air. If you want to make Jesus Christ king of your life, I see a couple of hands back there. And a hand up here. You can put those hands down. You don't have to keep them up. If you've made the choice to make Jesus Christ king of your life today, the scripture tells me that you're saved and that your sins are forgiven. And now your life exists for the purpose of following him wherever he leads you because he's your king. The next question I would ask is this. If you're one who in the past has previously made Jesus king of your life, have you gotten lazy about that? I think that's the story of my life. That I at times get lazy about the idea that Jesus Christ is my king. Sheila made this very point to me accidentally. She wasn't really, I don't think, meaning it for me. And she was sharing something that was revealed to her in her devotions. She asked me this question this week. Sean, do you talk about and think about the church more than you think about God? It was like an instant switch in my brain. Just a reminder that I spend all kinds of time and energy and focus on doing things the way I think they should be done and not spending enough time asking God, what would you have me do? And talking about what it is that God has asked me to do. Focusing my attention on my king. And if you're a believer today who has tried to reclaim the throne, it's time to repent. It's time to return to your first love. It's time to go back to that place where Jesus Christ is Lord, where he's the boss and he's in control. And you allow that 
to determine your future. I pray for you all. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the chance to be able to preach today at church. Now, Lord, I thank you for those who were uh, brave enough to raise their hand. I can't read the intents of their heart, the reason that they raised, oh Lord, but those five or so that raised their hand, Lord, I pray that you would be speaking clearly to them. Father, would you aid them through your helper, the Holy Spirit, to re-navigate their life by following you? Father, would you bring alongside them other strong believers to guide them? And if, if they don't have those believers in their life, that they would be brave enough to just come ask myself or one of the elders to do that for them, to disciple them and to train them up in the things of faith. Well, Father, for the believers in the room today who realize that they've tried to mount a coup and put themselves back in charge. Father, would you convict them and convince them to relinquish control and to once again follow after you? So, Father, myself included, Father, would you give us peace in the knowledge of the forgiveness of our sins, the reminder of our reconciliation that we're in right relationship with you. Father, we thank you. We love you today in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close with a final song, I believe. And the elders will be up here. If you have any prayer needs, they'd love to pray for you. And then I'm going to go pray that I have a voice second.